Kira and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by an educational grant from Eli Lilly. The content is entirely independent and was developed by the Goodfellow Unit and our expert speaker. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler and today I welcome Dr. Ryan Paul to the podcast. Today we are discussing an update on sick day management in the patient with diabetes mellitus. Ryan is an endocrinologist and diabetologist at the Waikato District Health Board and a senior lecturer at the University of Waikato. He has particular research interests in the emerging technologies in type 1 diabetes, the management of diabetes in youth and young adults, reducing inequities in diabetes care in Maori and rural populations, and improving models of care for diabetic patients. Ryan is an executive member of the New Zealand Society for the Study of Diabetes and in 2019 was awarded the New Zealand Clinical Educator of the Year by the New Zealand Medical Council. Kia ora Ryan and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. So today we're discussing sick day management with the patient with diabetes. So should all patients with diabetes have a sick day plan? Yes, they should, Louise, is the basic answer. And that is because... Any illness can lead to either significant or usually hyperglycemia, and much more so than hypoglycemia. And that can be a significant cause, I guess, of comorbidity that needs sorting during the acute illness. So, Ryan, what does a sick day plan look like? Well, we're hoping to actually develop a national standardised sick day plan. So it would be you know, for every patient across the country. But I think it's about having a simple checklist for patients to do, that they have whenever they get unwell. And that includes well, notifying somebody that they are unwell and they, they, you know, they may need someone, someone to check on them. Set up a basic advice in terms of making sure that they stay well hydrated and eat some food um, if possible that they can tolerate. And also specific advice around medications and what they need to change and when they need to seek medical attention. So I wonder if I can ask about monitoring. What sort of monitoring should we be telling our unwell diabetic patients to do? Well, for Louise, for all patients with diabetes, I recommend they have a glucometer and glucose test strips available at all times. They can use it whenever they're unwell. And we will be advising patients to check their glucose levels at least three to four times a day when unwell or at any time if they're symptomatic of hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia and an action plan developed around those glucose levels. Now that empagliflozin is widely used, it's become possible to you know, monitor ketone levels in terms of risk of diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, Pharmac have said wrongly or rightly that these patients do not receive a funded kerosene's dual meter, so they can't monitor their ketone levels at home. It's important to know that urinary ketone levels are unreliable in someone that's on empagliflozin due to reduced excretion of um, urinary ketones. So they need to monitor blood ketone levels. The take-home point is that diabetic ketoacidosis is still rare in these patients. And when they need to monitor ketone levels is whenever they have symptoms of diabetic ketoacidosis. Those symptoms are typically nausea, vomiting, or abdominal pain. If they have any of these symptoms, then we would be advising patients either come to your practice, or if it's out of hours to go to hospital to make sure that the capillary ketones are normal. And I'd class anything under sort of 1.5 millimole per litre as normal. If their levels are higher than that, then they actually need to be assessed in hospital for potential diabetic ketoacidosis. Thank you. Can I just ask you to clarify parameters that are worrying to you? So 
high or low glucose, and then just clarifying the ketone numbers for us. Sure. I would class anyone with severe hypoglycemia, and that may be any, anything less than four millimole per litre if, if they're very symptomatic, that needs, that needs medical attention, or if they're having frequent episodes of, of mild hypoglycemia, because that is something that, and once again, anything less than four millimole per litre, if it's frequent, that is something that also needs, needs medical attention. With regards to hyperglycemia, there is no, I guess, necessarily strict cutoff. If you had someone that was having persistent glucose levels greater than 20 millimole per litre, then I definitely think that would be worth sorting out their glycemic control. The other, so with regards to ketones, I would say it's anything less than 1.5 millimole per litre, then I wouldn't be concerned at all. I would stress as well, I mean, we're talking about type 2 diabetes here you would have a different sick day management for type 1 diabetes. And particularly these patients can monitor ketone levels at home and you'll be monitoring more frequently. You've given us some parameters, but at what point would we consider admission in the type 2 diabetic who was unwell? I think you're always treating the patient in front of you. And I think it's always important to remember. And if you would normally refer a patient for admission because of their illness, that still remains the case. So that, that doesn't change. And then it's about... Yeah, how unwell is the is you know in terms of regards to their, their glycemic control? And I think if you've got someone that has got persistent hyperglycemia, and um, particularly you know it may well the meter may be reading high, then these are and they may not normally be on insulin treatment. You will be worried about you know the potential risk of hyperglycemic hyposmolar syndrome or diabetic ketoacidosis, and then these patients should probably referred to hospital. And the same with recurrent hypoglycemia particularly if they've got insulin on board and you're not going to be able to manage them safely at home overnight. These are also patients that I'll be, be thinking about referring to hospital. So I wonder if we can talk about the different classes of medications now for a moment, thinking about those that will need to be altered and those that may need to be stopped. So can we start with the sulfonuria? Yeah, sure. Sulfonuria's, and you could put insulin in this, this group as, as well. You may well need to reduce the dose if the patient isn't eating well. Now, I will say most patients actually get hyperglycemia whilst unwell, even being on sulfonuria and insulin. So it's really only those that will stop any, you know, most of the oral intake. They may even be nil by mouth. And you may, in these patients, it's often easier in terms of at least halving. You know, sometimes you need to stop the sulfonuria whilst they're unwell. With insulin, you often so you also need to halve or stop their prandial insulin. But if they're on basal insulin, it will be important to keep this going, um, but you may find that a 20 to 30% reduction is required. I will say that there are a lot of patients on there out there in the community on whopping doses of Lantus, and you may need a greater than 20 to 30% reduction in Lantus to keep them safe. The other group, I guess, is those on premixed insulin. And these are often the patients which are most difficult to manage because if they do need still some insulin to maintain their glycemic control but they are potentially at risk of hypoglycemia. So if you can get these patients even just to eat a little bit, you know, at the time that they're having their, their premix insulin, um, that would be likely to keep them safe, but you may also still need to reduce that dose by varying degrees. It really comes back to patients monitoring their glucose levels so you can make evidence-based decision on, on what, what's best. Can we touch on metformin now? Yeah, well, with metformin, you only realistically need to in most patients, stop this if they're having gastrointestinal symptoms. So not nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, because it will potentially make those worse, and it, 
is the potential risk of problems if you run into someone that's significantly dehydrated. The other group is if you had someone in, I guess, acute heart failure or renal failure or liver failure, that you'd look at stopping metformin in that group, group as well. But actually, the vast majority of patients can continue on metformin when, when they're unwell. What about the newer groups of medications? So starting with the SGLT2 inhibitors, tell us about what we need to be aware of. You did touch on this earlier, but uh, in acute illness or perhaps preoperatively. Thanks, Louise. So it's really important that patients on embicliflozin, and it's either Jardiance or Jardiamet, stop it whenever they're unwell. Okay, And also, if they do have a planned procedure coming up, the rough rule of thumb is to stop two days before. So that's the two days before and the day of the procedure, or three days before if the procedure involves bowel prep, um, such as colonoscopy. And then they should only restart the empagliflozin when they're eating and drinking normally. If they follow that advice, and it's great if they have that written down in the sick day management plan, it's also in the the drug booklet um, that you can give to patients and all the, the pharmacists may provide that. In that, as part of that, I guess, as I've spoken about, they should also know when they need to have their ketone, ketone levels measured. So that's a really, really important point that when you're starting empagliflozin, that you get that message across. Um, with regards to dutaglutide or trilicity, once again, these patients will probably, they may already have the injection on board. So it's a once weekly injection. So there's nothing you can change from that point. But if they had you know, significant nausea or vomiting as part of the illness, it may be reasonable to delay their next injection in, until they're better. So I just wonder, Ryan, if you can just clarify for me, you said to stop the SGLT2 inhibitor when you're unwell. Does that mean a little bit unwell or a lot unwell or just not eating and drinking? Can you give us some real guidance on when to stop these medications? Thanks, Louise. I will say it's a really hard question to give a specific answer to. And I think the best advice is to tell patients any acute illness. Um, That just varies by degree for everybody. Same with procedures. In reality, there are some procedures where it would be absolutely um, fine to continue the empagliflozin with. Um, But out of consistency and ensure to keep people safe, I think if you just use any, any acute illness. And I would like to stress here that the risk of diabetic ketoacidosis is still rare. We're talking about one in a thousand in real world studies on patients on empagliflozin. So, you know, some people argue that we're doing a little bit of an overkill, um, but at the end of the day, we're just trying to keep our patients safe. I wonder too, you've mentioned DKA, and that's something that does worry us in primary care. So can we just go through that a little bit more? Definition of DKA, how are patients going to present and what we need to do with them? Well, what diabetic ketoacidosis is defined as, is basically hyperglycemia with high ketone levels and subsequent acidosis as, as a result of that. Now, what is really different about SGL2 inhibitor-induced DKA is that glucose levels may be normal. So this is where it comes about to look at the symptoms, look at the ketone levels, and making that decision whether they then need to go on to have a blood gas, for example, to determine whether they have DKA. And obviously the vast majority of you can't do that in in primary care and it needs to be a referral to secondary care to to get that done. In reality, if you've got a patient that has capillary ketone levels less than three millimole per litre, then they're unlikely to be in DKA. 
but we do recommend using a cutoff of 1.5 millimole pleater just for safety reasons and, and to get assessment over that level. And sometimes those symptoms that you mentioned earlier of nausea, vomiting and abdominal pain can go with an acute illness. So how do, is there a way to differentiate one from the other? And that is a good question, Louise, is it can be very difficult um, to differentiate you know, between what's causing what. They may have other symptoms such as you, know, you might even smell ketones on their breath and they may have a fast respiratory rate, which may be out of keeping with, with any sort of respiratory symptoms. I would say safety first. If you're in doubt and you've got a you know, capillary ketone meter in your practice, I'd use it if you've got the patient in front of you. Um, that, that will give you your, your answer to, to regards the risk. And then you're going to be advising your patients to stop the empical flows in if they haven't stopped it already. And it can be difficult to know when to repeat the ketone levels. But I think if you had any deterioration in the illness, particularly any symptoms suggestive of DK, and yet you, you repeat the ketone levels again at that point. So we're thinking this person has got DKA and we're referring them into hospital. Often our patients like to know what to expect when they hit hospital. So what can we tell them? The, the mainstay of treatment is rehydration. And this will be for IV rehydration. And also insulin will be started as well to treat um, the ketoacidosis. It can be a little bit tricky if the glucose levels are normal because you also have to end up giving carbohydrate as well often through a drip. Um, so you will, will be advising these patients will be, will be admitted to hospital. So if they can take stuff with them, that, that, that's great. And they will likely be spending several days in hospital. Unfortunately, due to multiple reasons, we have lots of delay in, our, in ED whilst, whilst they may be waiting. So anything you can do to encourage these patients to stay well hydrated will be important. And they, they may well be able to tolerate that orally. So if they can if they can drink that, that would be that'd be really important. Then hopefully their glycemic control can be sorted out because these patients shouldn't be on empagliflozin really long term. And that's looking at alternative agents. And Ryan, at what point do we restart the medications? I would restart that once the patient's eating and, and drinking, drinking normally. And that may be a you know various stage, you know, maybe maybe the next day, it may be a week later. One thing that you will find is that patients will be discharged from hospital, and it may be that their empagliflozin has been stopped pre-procedure, um, but it hasn't been restarted yet. There's no reason, um, you know, once they're eating and drinking normally at home, there's no reason why, why you can't restart it then. But I will suspect that, you know, there may be quite a bit of that advice left off discharge summaries um, for patients, and it's about, you know, GPs reinitiating it at that point. I will say, if you do start empagliflozin too early in the post-operative or post-illness period, there's still risk of DK at that point. So it is really waiting until you know, things have returned to normality. I wonder if we can touch on one thing before we end today. So we're mid-pandemic at the moment. Is there anything that we need to think about with our type 2 diabetic patients when they do get COVID? The vast majority that do get COVID will still remain well. But what we worry about is obviously those patients who are unwell. And hyperglycemia, is one of the biggest risk factors for poor outcomes. And so dealing with the glycemic control is really important. But you could say that about the majority of, of any significant illnesses. What often compounds things is these patients need hospital care and that they're started on, on dexamethasone, um, which is obviously can compound the hyperglycemia. 
there may be times, I guess, since we you know, really are in the height of pandemic where these patients are discharged with still the effects of dexamethasone on board, um, because it is very long acting, and you may well need you know, short-term insulin or other agents to control hypoglycemia in that period. The advice still stands that dexamethasone is only indicated in hospitalized patients. So at this stage, I wouldn't be recommending using dexamethasone in, in primary care, but it is um, something about, you know, the, obviously we're worried about outcomes in COVID. Dealing with the, with the glucose control is really important. So you've mentioned dexamethasone. Tell us about dexamethasone in the diabetic patient with COVID. What are we trying to achieve here? Well, the, the main aim is reducing the inflammatory response um, along with COVID. And it's not, um, I will say it's not specific to patients with diabetes. It's for all, you know, for those patients who are sick enough to be hospitalized with COVID and require basically high level of care. And we know that dexamethasone improves outcomes. Um, but it also raises a good point for any steroid treatment in patients with, with diabetes. Louise was, is a, a common form of comorbidity. And I'd count anything over one to two milligrams of dexamethasone a day or prednisone of 20 milligrams a day, doses higher than that, as being significant. Um, and you'll find that most of your patients with diabetes will develop significant hypoglycemia as a result. In fact, most of 30% of patients out there with prediabetes also develop significant hyperglycemia. And it's thinking about a plan to deal with that, particularly if they are on, for example, the prednisone long-term for something like polymyalgia. These patients, it's great if you do a baseline assessment of glycemic control, and an HbA1c would be very reasonable for that. And then actually checking their glucose levels when they are on the steroids to determine whether any, any therapy is required. Sometimes you can get away with sulfonylureas, um, you know, in terms of reducing their hypoglycemia, but often you require insulin um, whilst they're on high-dose steroids. So it may be, particularly for future courses, for something like exacerbation of COPD or another course of, of chemotherapy, that when the patient's undergoing this treatment, that you have short-term insulin, which is then, you know, they don't require in-between episodes, but you just got that planned when they're, when they're on, on high-dose steroids. I wonder if we can just circle back for a moment and talk about that dexamethasone in the COVID patient who's in hospital. As the pressure goes on the system, patients aren't going to stay for the duration of the course of the dexamethasone. So we will be managing them in the community. So tell us about the duration of that and particularly what we should be looking at and monitoring in primary care. Well, first I'll say I'm definitely no expert on COVID in terms of you know, their, their, their inpatient care. But the initial plan anyhow is for high-dose dexamethasone for, for 10 days. Now, I'm not sure, you know, in terms of if we get the stage of pandemic where these patients are leaving hospital early, I suspect that dexamethasone will be stopped on discharge. Um, but what is important to know is dexamethasone has a long half-life. So you may well still see, you know, the effects of dexamethasone for three to four days after, after stopping. And you often need to still treat with more intensive glucose iron therapy during these during those days, but it's a stepwise decrease until you know until the effects of dexamethasone are gone. That's really useful advice. Thank you for that. To conclude our podcast today, some take-home messages for our listeners, please. Um, sure. I think firstly, I'd make sure that everyone, everyone with diabetes has, has a sick day management plan that includes basics, including um, staying well hydrated. And one thing I haven't spoken about is avoiding non-steroidals. If possible, I think that's really important, particularly if they've got any diabetic renal disease. 
and advice around monitoring their glucose levels, you know, how often to monitor it three to four times a day, when they need to seek medical attention, and what they need to do with their medications. And that will include stopping SGL2 inhibitors whenever they're unwell, stopping metformin and potentially other agents if they've got gastrointestinal symptoms, and when they need to um, you know, reduce their insulin sulfonylureas and seek attention to have um, their ketone levels measured if they are on endocrifosin. Thank you for that. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP, please claim your CPD points and you'll find a list of resources at our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.